Our sermon this morning is on Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Otherwise, look on the screen and we will work through this text. Jesus gets angry in this text. He gets angry. He gets violent. He uh, you know, sees what's going on in the temple as he enters into Jerusalem and uh, out of zeal for the glory of God and zeal for the, the worship of the people of God. Um, he destroys all these sinful things that are happening in the, the temple, all of these kind of perversions of God's uh, glory uh, that, that, are, that are happening there. So my hope, as we read this, it's a real short text, mercifully short, just a couple of verses, but or four verses. But my hope as we read it is that we can kind of uh, see and kind of understand who Jesus is as, uh, as the God that has come to his people, presented himself to his people as their king, and then looked at his people, looked at the, you know, quote, unquote, worship of his people, and, uh, and, and looks on it with concern and with, uh, he cares, right? God is not, uh, Jesus is not indifferent to uh, his people. He's not indifferent to their worship, the purity of their worship, how they are worshiping him, and whether or not they are worshiping Jesus on his terms or not. And he cares enough about that to defend it, right? It cares enough about the worship of his people to fight for it. Uh, cares enough about the worship of God's people to confront evil and sin, uh, both in the both in others that are seeking to do harm to God's people and in in in, uh, in God's people themselves uh, in places where they are rebelling against him. So that's kind of the, the hope is to see Jesus as our savior who cares and is concerned uh, about us and then to let that affect us and move us and uh, mobilize us to, to, to follow Jesus and to glorify him and to, to obey him and how he is called to, to worship him. So let's read through Luke nineteen forty five to 48, and then we'll get, we'll get going. It says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on our time this morning as we uh, read your word. We ask you to quiet our hearts. We ask you to attune them to your spirit so that we can hear from you and learn from you. We ask you, Lord, to uh, meet with us and speak to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so... Like we saw last week, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem. He's kind of concluded his uh, trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. He walked in. He was uh, initially greeted by, you know, just crowds of people worshiping him, excited to see him. He's also greeted by uh, religious leaders who were uh, kind of antagonistic and rebuking him and demanding him to rebuke his uh, disciples. Jesus then withdraws over to the side uh, and, and uh, you know, is weeping. 
and, and is mourning the fact that uh, his people, the, the city of Jerusalem, have uh, you know, more or less rejected him or are about to uh, reject him in the coming days. And Jesus kind of gets emotional. And then he, uh, after he kind of makes this triumphal entry in, he immediately makes his way to the temple. The temple, we've discussed this before, but the temple is kind of the, the focal point of Jerusalem uh, in the first century when Jesus was alive. Solomon first built the temple about a thousand years prior, just, you know, 957 B.C. That temple stood for several hundred years until it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And so that, uh, uh, the second temple was built about 70 years thereafter, 516 B.C., uh, there was a, a new uh, temple was built, a second temple was built, and that one stayed until uh, just before Jesus was born, uh, uh, Herod the Great uh, kind of renovated this temple. The second temple that was built, Herod the Great came in and renovated it, put all of these, you know, fancy, elaborate, uh, you know, ornate, uh, you know, renovations and additions onto the temple. By the time Jesus was born, it was a mat. It, by the time Jesus was born, the temple accounted for about one-sixth of the square footage of the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was essentially a temple that had a, a city around it, more, more or less. And so it was 1.5 million square feet, and it was the center of Jewish religious life. The, the entire premise of the Jewish religion was that God has created his people, God has spoken to his people, we, you know, they kind of carry this ethnic identity, we are a people that God created and that God has especially, you know, loved and, and entered into a covenant relationship with, and God has spoken to us. He spoke to, you know, our father Adam in the Garden of Eden. He spoke to Abraham and called him uh, out of the wilderness. He spoke to Moses at Sinai after he had saved us from uh, slavery in Egypt. God has created us and has entered into a covenant with us and has spoken to us. We are a people who have a relationship with God, right? That kind of gets you through Genesis and Exodus. But then, interestingly, right on the heels of Exodus is the book of Leviticus, a book about the Le- Leviticus uh, is Levites. So a book about the Levites, the, the, the Levitical tribe was the, the priests of Israel, so immediately after God entering into a covenant relationship with his people and speaking with them and preserving them and saving them, we have a book about uh, how priests are to administer sacrifices, which, by, which inherently uh, are, sacrifices are about how do we uh, appease the wrath of God? How do we get ourselves back into right relationship with God since we have soured it, since we have you know severed that relationship? And it spells out, you know, Burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings. Here's what the priests are supposed to wear. Here's, you know, what the, here's the feasts and holidays that you're supposed to observe. All of these kinds of things. So, so Leviticus kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing the, the Jewish worldview kind of take shape. God has created us. God has made us. God has spoken to us. God has entered into a relationship with us. God has given us his law, and then immediately after God has given us his law, God has given us a way to be reconciled to him after we have broken God's law, because it doesn't take long after we get the law before we have, have broken it. So that's kind of the, the, you know, the foundation of the Jewish worldview. And the way, that, the way that the priests and the Levites that we see in Leviticus kind of help us be reconciled to God and help us be, have a restored relationship with God is through sacrifices, through offerings. Those sacrifices and offerings take place at the temple. 
which is why the temple was central to the life of a Jewish person. The temple is where God dwelled on earth. The temple is where the God's people came to be made right with God, to be reconciled back into... Right? So but, uh, when God first created humanity, the, the garden was the temple. The Garden of Eden was this cosmic temple where God dwelled with his people. Adam walked with God. Uh, God and Adam had a relationship because the, the garden was a, a cosmic temple. After Adam sinned and was expelled from the garden, after uh, you know Moses uh, met with God at Sinai, God gave Moses all of these prescriptions for how to construct the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was uh, like, a, like a temporary... Uh, tran- like a portable temporary temple, as it, as it were. And so sacrifices would be offered there. In the middle of the tabernacle was this, you know, a tent that was kind of constructed. And the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was the innermost room in the tabernacle. And that's where God dwelled. Eventually the tabernacle would give way to the temple. This like permanent structure that Solomon built. And that was now where God dwelled on earth, right? The tabernacle and later the temple was the, was the intersection, as it were, between heaven and earth. It's where God dwelled and where humanity kind of rallied around and interacted with God. Of course, when, when later when Jesus comes, Jesus identifies himself as the true temple. He is God uh, himself walking here on earth. We can interact with God through Jesus because jo- Jesus is God in human flesh. Later in the New Covenant, what we're in now, the church, the people of God, is referenced as God's temple here on earth. God lives in, dwells in His people through the presence of His Holy Spirit. And eventually, in the new heavens and the new earth, all of creation will be God's temple. Right? Uh, all of cre- there, there will be no part of creation. I mean, you, you, the, the, what started as the Garden of Eden and eventually kind of made these pit stops in the tabernacle and the temple, and the church will eventually expand and grow to be all of creation is God's temple. All of creation, the new heavens and the new earth, will, will all universally be drenched in the unmediated glory of God that we will experience and, and participate in as God's people. That's kind of the, the trajectory of the temple and the presence of, of God. But when Jesus walks into Jerusalem, the, the temple is understood to be, this is where God dwells, this is where God's people come to experience God. So, of course, that's right where Jesus goes, to the temple. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. So here's kind of the backstory on what Jesus saw, what he found when he came into the temple. People from all over Israel would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. They would, you know, gather their families. They would kind of have, you know, they, they would make pit stops along the way, stop and camp out, stop and stay with relatives, things like that, travel for miles. And, and they found over time that bringing animals was just was taxing, right? We've We've got enough to do looking after our belongings and our family and our little kids and our old parents. We have to watch out for robbers and predators and look out for the elements. Travel was not easy in the first century. And so all of these thousands of people that would descend on Jerusalem during the Passover season, they said it's probably better just to take money and buy animals to sacrifice to God there in Jerusalem rather than bring a significant portion, 20, 30% of our flock 
with us to sacrifice those animals there to God. So you've got thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, uh, flocking to Jerusalem, money in hand, right? Uh, macroeconomics, where there's supply, the market will, like, demand will rush in to meet supply. It's kind of how, how business works, how entrepreneurs work. And so you get all these businessmen showing up saying, what do you need? Like, whatever you need, I've got it. You need a lamb, I've got a lamb. You need a goat, I've got a goat. You need, uh, you know, a calf, I've got a calf. You need a bird, I've got a bird. Don't, like, and they had special temple money. So you don't have special temple money, let me exchange uh, the money that you've got for temple money, right? There's businessmen looking to turn a profit, which uh, in and of itself is not bad, right? Um, the idea of engaging in business, transacting business, turning a profit is not bad. That's something that the Bible speaks highly of, this idea of, of um, you know, working and being industrious and being entrepreneurial. Those are good things. Um, however, Jesus sees it going on and he's furious about it. He's really upset. And there's a few things, there's a few reasons why Jesus is so upset at the business that's being transacted in the, the temple courts. And so first is it's, it's not wrong to transact business. It's not wrong to do business, but, um, the, when we do our work and our business should not encroach on the worship of God. It should not encroach on our uh, being proactive to worship God. It shouldn't take uh, the first place in our heart and in our life where worshiping God is supposed to go. So Jesus walks in. He's expecting to see a temple of people worshiping God. He's not expecting to see, you know, what looks like a mall on Black Friday with people trying to move inventory and, you know, make a, make a profit. So, so business work is intended by, it, it's good, if you never work, if you never engage in business, that's bad. But if you only ever work and you only ever engage in business and you never stop to worship God and you don't put worshiping God in its rightful place in your life, that is bad and sinful as, as well. So Jesus looks around, looks at these people who are essentially idolizing business, profit, money, work over God. They're worshiping money instead of worshiping God and he's mad about it. Because their roles have been reversed, which could just as easily happen today in the first century as it could happen, you know, today in the 21st century as it could happen in the first century, right? If you, yeah, if you're more committed to your job than you are to God, that's a problem. If, if obeying God, living for God, glorifying God, if those are all things that are secondary in your life to advancing in your career, making more money, if you have a pattern of consistently missing church and worshiping with God's people week after week because you either have to work or you feel like you have to work and be being absent from the weekly gathering of God's people to worship is becoming the normal way of things in your life. That's a problem. That's dangerous for the health of your soul. And that's kind of an aberration of what Jesus intends for his people. That, that would be, uh, you know, making work and business and transacting business and making money. It would be elevating it above worshiping God. But it's not, it's not just that Jesus sees people elevating worship above or elevating business above worship. And that's upsetting to him. He also sees people conflating business and worship together into some sort of weird, syncretistic uh, aberration, and he's upset by, by that, right? The, the people in Jesus' day had essentially turned worshiping God into a 
business venture, right? Here are people that need to worship God. Instead of mobilizing that, encouraging that, inviting people to do that, joining with them and doing that with them, I'm going to find a way to monetize it. I'm going to find a way to make money off of their desire to worship God, which again was not unique to the first century. You can look all throughout church history from the first century until today and see examples of people kind of conflating business and worship, monetizing the worship of God for their own personal sordid gains. All throughout, you know, the Catholic Church, um, you know, has had uh, examples, you know, Catholic Church, they would sell indulgences. So they would, you know, people would come to the priest and say, I've committed this sin, I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell. And they would say, yeah, you probably are, unless you buy this, like, that sin costs this much money. So put this much money into our coffers and then you will be uh, unburdened from the, the punishment for that sin. Or you could do it for your family members. I need my, my mother, my father, the, these people committed these sins. Here's an indulgence for that. You could buy preemptive future tense indulgences. Like buying the right to sin in this particular way in the future with a clean conscience. And so the Catholic Church, to this day, there are financial, financial guys who don't know how much money the Catholic Church has because they have a ton of art and, you know, gold and land and investments and all these kinds of, kinds of things. In the 20th century, uh, we saw the rise of Pentecostalism, uh, and that gave way uh, in several streams of it to prosperity theology. Preachers on television saying, if you send us money, you know, we promise that God will give you financial blessings and physical blessings in return. It's essentially the, the, the phenomenon of preachers who love money more than God, uh, teaching and training their people to love money more than God. So all throughout church history, up until today, there's been a conflation of business and worship. And Jesus uh, is not, Jesus is, is incensed when he sees the conflation of business and there, there's a, one of the biggest churches in America, the pastor of the church, uh, in his office has a, has a plaque that says, what is our business, who is our customer, and what does our customer want? That's like the, that's like the driving, you know, kind of like the undergirding thing that he kind of like, their, their staff kind of, it's, it's very similar to what you'd see on a Fortune 500 company, right? What's our business? Who's our customers? What do our customers want? Let's get that into their hands. Let's, let's you know, maximize the people that we're selling our product to, maximize our market share, maximize our revenue, right? People who come to church are our customers. They, they pay the going rate, what the market demands to have their needs and desires met. They want, you know, polished music programs, Right? They want a sermon that, you know, is like a TED Talk that just kind of makes them feel a little bit better. You know, so let, let's find out what they want, give them what they want so that we can kind of make, uh, you know, pe- we can kind of get more and more customers and turn them into repeat customers and kind of have brand loyalty. There's a lot of churches that think like that. That's not like, that's not that far off from how a lot of pastors in America would kind of understand uh, church. Who's our customer? What do they want? Instead of, you know, how do we herald the glory of God and kind of make God more famous? How do we proclaim the gospel to an onlooking world that desperately needs to, to hear it? How do we shepherd the flock of people that God has entrusted to us so that they can grow in their faith? God never intended for 
worship to become a business. And that's what made, that's what made Jesus as upset as he, as he was. He sees the, the, the monetization and the, the you know, business-ification, as it were, of, of worship. And he's, and he's upset by it. There's another reason, though, that's, that's you know, as, as we kind of dig into this text and look at maybe some parallel passages of it in Matthew, let's see, Matthew uh, 21 and Mark 11, it can kind of, we can kind of spot some details that make it look even more eerie and maybe give us some more insight into why Jesus was as upset as he was, right? Both of those texts, uh, they don't say that Jesus entered the temple like it does here. They're more specific and they say that Jesus entered the temple courts, and so here's kind of how the temple was uh, constructed and laid out to kind of help you understand a little bit more how it worked and where exactly Jesus was. You start with, it's almost like concentric, concentric levels that, you, you know, so the, the, the innermost level was called the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. No one's allowed in there. One day a year, the high priest of Israel is allowed to go in there on the Day of Atonement, sprinkle blood from a, from a sacrifice that had been offered around. But other than that, you were not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. It is, it is holy. And so if you go in there, you will surely die. It was, it was constructed as a perfect cube. All of the, you know... All of the dimensions were exactly kind of laid out into be a perfect cube. Outside of the innermost place, the Holy of Holies was, um, was a, a sanctuary, essentially. Kind of like a lobby, like a waiting area. And uh, you could go in there if you were a priest. So priests would kind of go in there and do, do ministry um, on any given day. You know, in, a, a regular priest could kind of make their way into the sanctuary, uh, the, the waiting room outside of the most holy place. You go outside of the building and you get to the court of the Israelites. So you're allowed to go in the court of Israelites if you are an Israelite, but specifically a, a Jewish male. So, so uh, Israelite men are allowed in the court of Israelites. You go through another gate, you get to the court of the women. So now you're allowed to, like, now um, that's where any, any male or female, any Jewish person, any ethnic Israelite could kind of go into the court of the women. You go a little bit further and you go through and you get to the court of the Gentiles. And that's where anyone that was, that was not ethnically Jewish, that's as close as they could get. So, like, yeah, like with each fence, with each gate, with each concentric circle that you get closer into, it kind of, you know, is more selective as to who can, right? Uh, anyone can come up to here. Uh, Jewish people can come up to here. Jewish males can come up to here. Uh, Jewish male priests can come up to here. And then the high priest on one day of a year can come into this particular room. That's kind of how it was, was set up. So when Jesus enters into the temple courts, it's referring to the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court where anyone and everyone can kind of gather and congregate. And some people, that's as far as they can get. That's as close as they can get. You're like, all you can do to worship God is get here and kind of look over the, the, you know, the better seats as it were and see where worship is happening. And you can kind of join with them from a distance. That's where Jesus was. That's where all of this business was being transacted. But the point of the court of the Gentiles was to invite Gentiles into it. 
The point of the court of the Gentiles was to say, you know, God wants all people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every people group. He wants them to flock to the temple and learn about who He is and experience Him and have their lives changed by His glory. So Jesus is expecting to come into the court of the Gentiles and see evangelism and see hospitality and see people being welcomed to know God. And instead, the space is monopolized by dozens, hundreds of tables and booths of people buying and selling and commercializing the worship of God. He's upset. Right? Not just that they're buying and selling instead of worshiping, but specifically that they're buying and selling in the space. That, it's almost like they're saying, who are you? Are you a, 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 a Jewish? Are you a wealthy Jewish male? Someone that I want to, to network with and have a relationship with? Then you come through this door in here where we have space. We can relax. We can worship on our terms. It can be a friendly experience. Oh, who are you? A Gentile. Then you're stuck outside of this gate and you are squeezed in, right? You, uh, all of the space has been taken up by all of these people trying to scam you and sell you stuff and make money off of you. And the, the there, there was no room for Gentiles to worship because they were being crowded out by Jewish people taking their space and using that space to scam them and to kind of uh, extract money from them. What, the, what Matthew and Mark also include. So, so, so Matthew and Mark kind of give us some insight to say that this uh, you know, practice that was happening, that Jesus was so upset, was particularly being done at the expense of Gentiles who wanted to know who God was. Right? It didn't necessarily affect the worship of Jewish people, Jewish males, Jewish male priests who had all the space that they wanted to worship God from a closer vantage point. Who it was affecting and who it was pushing out and who it was disenfranchising was, was Gentiles and foreigners. But also what it does, it says that uh, Jesus, it's not just that he was in the, the, court, the, the temple courts, but Matthew and Mark also say that Jesus overturned the tables of money. And the benches of those who were selling doves. So the two things that it mentions specifically in Matthew and Mark that Jesus was most upset by and that he went out of his way to kind of stop from happening was changing money, selling doves. Again, changing money is specific for Gentiles, people from out of the area, out of the country, people that don't have access to our Jewish currency, our temple currency. So it's it's a... a you know, a practice that was specifically targeting foreigners instead of Jewish people. And then the, the selling of doves, it doesn't say that, they, that he threw over tables that were, you know, selling uh, calves and lambs and goats. It says they threw over the tables that were selling doves because that was specifically targeting and, and exploiting and extracting money from poor people. Uh, Leviticus chapter 5, we read rules about uh, laws and sacrifices for God. And it says, you know, if you've sinned in this particular way, then get a lamb or get a goat and come and, and sacrifice it in this particular way. And then it says, but if you can't afford a lamb, most people could, but if you can't afford a lamb, then uh, take to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed. Two turtle doves or two pigeons one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So birds were specifically the the... the sacrificial offering currency of the lower class, the, the impoverished people that could not afford the standard lamb that you were supposed to uh, sacrifice to God. 
So Jesus says, all right, you guys are in the temple courts. You have, you have a system set up to extract money at a predatory lending rate from people that have foreign currency. They're already vulnerable. They're already, you know, uh, and, and you are targeting them specifically. And then you are selling at a marked up rate at an inflated price birds, which means that you are targeting poor people. So Jesus is particularly upset that uh, the people of God, right, and specifically kind of the religious ruling class, because this was all done under the, the watchful eye of the high priest. He knew what was happening. He allowed it to happen, and he profited from it. And so, so this, see, he's saying that the, the religious ruling class is kind of playing, showing favoritism to people that are rich, people that are insiders. They're welcoming them in, and then they are exploiting and they are taking advantage of people that are not Jewish and people that are financially in distress. It's like the predecessor to prosperity theology and, you know, kind of unhealthy televangelism and things like that that we see today. Greedy, dishonest religious leaders who love money more than God, play favorites, cater to the rich and powerful, and exploit the poor and the, the vulnerable. It's wicked. And it's evil. And Jesus sees it, and he's angry, and he is fear- He's really mad, right? There's a, the, a similar incident in John chapter 2. Uh, scholars are, uh, you know, kind of differ on whether it's the same incident or not. Uh, I tend to think that it's a different incident because it happened uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John, whereas these in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they happen at the end. So I think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all referring to the same incident. John is referring to a different incident because it has some... It's at the beginning, but it also has some different ancillary details. But uh, one of the details that John mentions that none of the other do is that Jesus uh, sees all of this business happening in the temple courts. Throws all of, it says that he, uh, took a, he made a whip out of cords. So he got rope of some kind. He probably went and bought it and then weaved a, ro- a whip out of these cords. So, so it, was like, it wasn't like an impulsive, rash Right, fly off the handle, lose my temper, regret it later. I wish I hadn't done that, but it was a, a calculated decision that Jesus made. He was he was actively angry, filled with righteous indignation. He went off to the side. Again, this is the 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 other episode in John uh, where he went off to the side and did it. And so, seemingly, what happened is that these two episodes of Jesus cleansing the temple like bookend his ministry. The beginning of his three year ministry, he does this because he's upset. Three years later, things have just kind of regressed back to the mean, and he does it uh, again. But one way or the other, Jesus is angry, and he responds in anger. Right? A lot of people think that Jesus was a, a gentle, meek, and mild. Christians are supposed to be nice and gentle and meek and mild. And there's truth to that, right? There's Christians are called to love our neighbor. We're called to die to ourselves. We're called to... Uh, put other people's interests above our own. But sometimes the, the most godly thing that we can do is get angry. Jesus was gentle, but he sometimes got angry. Christians are called to be nice and to sometimes get angry. Not all the time, right? Some Christians get angry way too much, right? Every hill is a hill that they want to die on. But sometimes, for the right reasons, godly Christians are called to get uh, angry. B.B. Warfield talks about it uh, this way. We have a quote here by, by him. He says, It would be impossible for a moral being 
to stand in the presence of a perceived wrong and be indifferent and unmoved. Precisely what we mean by a moral being is the ability to differentiate between right and wrong and then to react appropriately to right and wrong perceived as such. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being as such and cannot be lacking in him in the presence of wrongdoing. Dane Ortland uh, is commenting on this particular quote, and he says, a perfectly, hum- a perfectly moral being such as Christ would be a contradiction if he did not get angry. Perhaps we feel that to the degree that we emphasize Christ's compassion, we neglect his anger. To the degree that we emphasize his anger, we must neglect his compassion. But what we must see is that the two rise and fall together. A compassionless Christ could never have gotten angry at the injustices all around him, the severity of human barbarity, even that flowing from the religious elite. No compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. He's quoting Warfield here. It's the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger rises most fiercely if she is mistreated. Jesus loves his people, especially Especially those that the world has overlooked, those that the world has despised, those that the world has forgotten about, those that the world is indifferent to. Jesus loves his people, and he's angry when he sees them being taken advantage of for personal gain. He starts driving them out, flipping the tables over. Smashing things on the ground. Mark 11 says that, uh, that, that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So it's like, you know, there was no hope of, like, this guy's just a little crazy. Like, let's just let him, let's just let this run its course. He'll flip over some tables and then he'll walk away. It says Jesus flipped over the tables and then, like, stood there, like, not letting anyone else start you know, this practice, it's like a pitcher who like throws a high fastball and hits a guy and then just stares at him as he walks to first base. Like, you know, I did that on purpose and I am not going, like I'm, I'm very clear and confident in what I'm doing and, and why. So Jesus flips all the stuff over, throws things or money is probably flying in the air. He's standing there. He won't, he's blo- actively, physically blocking people's paths of, of kind of picking things up and kind of resuming the business that they were in before he got there. And then he says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. That's a quote from Isaiah 56. But you have made it a den of robbers. That's a quote from Jeremiah 7. And here's what those texts say. In context, Isaiah 56, it says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. Isaiah is talking to the people of God. He's saying, wait, be godly as you wait for salvation to come, for my righteousness to be revealed. And what does that godliness look like? What are you going to do as you wait for my justice to come? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. So, so when, when Gentiles and people that are not from Israel, if they come to the Lord, if they trust in God, don't 
make them feel like they're separate. Don't make them feel like they're second class citizens. Don't make them feel like they cannot worship God. Don't make, don't exploit them as they're trying to worship God. He continues and he says, uh, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and who holds fast to My covenant, these are the people that I will bring to My holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all people." Right? Isaiah 56 is, is the picture of the temple that is welcoming, it is inviting, it is universal. Anyone and everyone, whoever will come, come and worship God. And he says, you've taken that vision, right? The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares to them, I will gather yet others besides those who are already gathered. The whole point of Isaiah 56 is God loves Israel. God has a covenant with Israel and God wants everyone to come and be gathered in to the fold of his people. That's what Jesus has on his mind. That's what he's expecting to see as he walks into the temple. And what he sees is the very outcasts and the very foreigners that are supposed to be invited in. They're being exploited and taken advantage of. Instead, what he sees is Jeremiah 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in his place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. That's the vision that Jeremiah sets out for God's people. Love your neighbor. Invite the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the vulnerable. Invite them in so that they can experience God with you. But behold... You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come before me and stand in this house, which is called by my name, and then you're going to say, we are delivered, only to go on and do all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And now because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will cast you out of my sight. The temple of God is intended to be this place that invites and welcomes all people from all over, right from the farthest corners of the earth, welcomes them in so that they can experience God and worship Him. And instead it's become a place of idolatry and violence and oppression and exploitation and kind of personal gain. And Jesus hates that. He, he cares. He's not indifferent to it. He doesn't walk in and say, well, you know, could be better, wish it were different, but what are you going to do? Right? Like, I used to think that, I used to think that parents, I had had friends' parents who, like, never disciplined them. Right? Never got grounded. Never, you know, they'd get written up in school, notes home, your kid's, you know, bad. And they, and I'd be like, are you going to get in trouble? They're like, no, I don't ever, I don't get in trouble. Like, my parents don't really, they'll just sign it and I'll bring it back and it doesn't really matter. I used to think, man, those parents are so cool. Like, those parents are so nice. Man, their, their kids don't have to worry about being disciplined when they get home. Parents that care about stuff like that are, are mean and harsh. 
course, that's not true, right? If you never discipline your kids, you don't care when they misbehave or get into trouble, that's not love, that's indifference, right? That, that's kind of showing that you, you, you're, you're resigned to what they, who they are, who they're becoming. You don't care enough to help them become the person that you want them to be, that God wants them to be. Jesus cares about his people. He cares enough about them that he's willing to, you know, do the hard work of confronting sin, protecting them from others who are sinning against them, and confronting sin in their own hearts. Jesus cares about his people. He doesn't, it doesn't just care about his people. He cares about the physical gathering of his people, right? He cares about what happens when the people of God gather together. God cares about whether you attend church or not. If you've fallen out of the habit of gathering with God's people, Jesus cares about that. It, Jesus is not indifferent to whether or not you participate in the physical gathering of the people of God. Jesus cares about the purity of the people of God. He cares about uh, whether they are doing what God intends for them to do, whether they're doing what God has called them to do. He cares about their doctrine. He cares about the constitution that they uh, collectively affirm so that they can live by it. Jesus cares about his people. He cares about their gathering together. He cares about the purity of their doctrine and their lives. He cares about their prayer lives, right? Jesus says this was supposed to be a house of prayer. Would that be an accurate description of this church? Would that be an accurate description of your home? Right? The, the tiny little church over which you are a tiny little pastor. Right? Or is, is that, would that accurately be described as a house of prayer? God intends for his people to be active in prayer, personally, privately. Right? He wants his people to Set aside time regularly, turn off your phone, turn off the, what, all the, you know, electronics, silence, solitude, praying, reflecting on God and his beauty and his glory, recalling the evidences of grace in your life and thanking God for them, confessing your sin to God and repenting of it, being honest with God about your cares and concerns and desires and your hopes and your dreams and your doubts and your fears. God wants you to come into his presence with with brutal honesty and with uh, ruthless trust, right? God cares about your private prayer life and God cares about uh, our corporate communal prayer life. That's why we have member meetings where we pray together. The lion's share of our member meetings are devoted to corporate prayer. That's why we have a a prayer call every Wednesday night. People can kind of call in from wherever they are, take a few minutes to pray together. A couple of quotes about corporate prayer specifically. Uh, uh, John Anwuchekwa, the pastor, wrote a book on corporate prayer. He says, prayer was never meant to be merely a personal exercise with personal benefits. It's a little counter-cultural for us today. Right? My prayer life, my business, personal exercise. Prayer was never meant to be that, but rather a discipline that reminds us how we're personally responsible for others. The mean, this means that every time we pray, we should actively reject the individualistic mindset. We're not just individuals in relationship with God. We're part of a community who all have the same access to God. Prayer is a collective exercise. You're not just responsible for your prayer life. You are responsible for James River Community Church's prayer life as a, as a, 
organism, as a collective entity. He continues, the local church is the best way to define us in our prayers. The church in covenant with a local church is never alone. As long as the church endures, which will be for all of eternity, the Christian is always part of an us, a collective entity. The local church takes the theory of Christianity, makes it tangible in love and deed, and especially in prayer. And finally, later in his book, he uh, talks about, kind of casts this vision for a church that has a healthy prayer life. A church that practices prayer is more than a church that learns It's a church that leans, and we learn dependence by leaning on God together. God's calling our church to be a house of prayer. He's calling your home to be a a house of prayer. And in verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. So so immediately after this event, you you kind of... Might be a little awkward, but he kind of does this thing, throws all the tables over, and then just kind of sets up shop. This is going to be where I hang out. It's probably the same place that he was, uh, you know, when he was, uh, you know, when he was 12 years old in Luke chapter 2. Um, and uh, is, is kind of questioning the, the religious leaders that are there. He sets up shop and begins teaching, kind of, kind of continuing the mission that he's been on ever since he began his ministry. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. It's the first mention in Luke, right? Jesus has said up until now that I'm going to be crucified and killed. The, the Pharisees and the religious leaders have uh, expressed resentment and disappointment and frustration at Jesus up until now, but, but not until now have they actually said, all right, we want to murder him. Like, we, like it's, we're not just mad, we're mad enough to do something, and this is the thing that we want to do. So now, several days before Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the religious leaders are beginning to say, all right, we, something needs to be done here, right? This is... We can't let this continue on. This guy is, is costing us money. He's costing us power. He's costing us control. We had a stranglehold on the city, on the nation. We had a stranglehold on God. And this guy is kind of causing us to lose the leverage that we had. Let's, let's kill him. Verse 48, But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on Jesus' words. So the... The one thing that the religious leaders uh, hated even more than Jesus was the thought of being ignored, the thought of losing relevance, the thought of uh, people, you know, uh, disrespecting them, not caring about what they have to say. Right? God forbid I be my own man with my own thoughts, stand on my own two feet, with or without the approval of the masses. No, I, I am only, my life only counts for something if everyone looks up to me, kisses the ring, bows at me as I, as I walk by. So as much as they hate Jesus... They love and respect the approval from people even more. So they can't quite uh, move on Jesus just yet. They can kind of plot and think and plan about how they're going to kill him, but they can't do it just yet. Of course, they won't have to wait long, and it will be just a few short days before they uh, get their wish, right? They're starting to plan here. They're starting to plot, figure out how they can destroy Jesus. It doesn't take long for them to figure out. We just got to turn one of his disciples, pay that guy off, get him to, uh, to, to betray Jesus. 
Right? Then we've got to turn the crowd. We've got to kind of get Jesus kind of in front of the crowd. We'll arrest him on false charges. We'll get him in front of the crowd. We will sway the crowd and get them to shout to have Barabbas, a terrorist, released to them instead of, of Jesus. He'll be sentenced to die, beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross, punished for the sins of all of humanity as the, the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. And as that happens... Just a few short days later, as Jesus is on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, paying the penalty for the sins of his people, God comes to the temple again. Jesus comes to the temple here, throws the tables over. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, we read that the curtain in the temple, the curtain that separated the most holy place, the perfect cube where God dwells, The curtain that separated that from the rest of the world, from the sanctuary and the rest of the world, was torn. And it says it was torn into from top to bottom, implying that God himself was the one who tore this curtain. Here's what that signifies, right? Up until now, up until Jesus died, God's presence was in this cube. It was in the the Holy of Holies. God was here. God is holy. You are out there. You are sinful. Sinful man cannot come into the presence of a holy God. And when Jesus died on the cross, when God's wrath against sin was satisfied, the curtain was torn and it was God saying, you can... You can come into my presence now. Before, you were separated from God. You were alienated from God. You were far away from God. God saw you and He was angry. He was flipping over tables, driving people out. You could not be near God. You could not be with God. You had sinned against God and against God's holiness and you could not be in relationship with Him. But now, you can. Now, Through what Christ has done on the cross, the the curtain has been torn in two. Access to God has been restored. You can come into the presence of God. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you will not be cast out. You will not be driven out. You will not be overthrown. You will be welcomed and embraced and accepted on the basis of who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who was slain so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And Jesus invites us through his death and through his resurrection to come into his presence. He invites us to turn from our sin and to trust in him and to believe the gospel and to to hang on his every word. So that we can experience forgiveness and salvation and that we can live with Him under His sovereign, righteous rule. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your death on the cross. We thank You for Your resurrection and Your victory over sin and death. Lord, we pray that that we could experience those things afresh, that we could participate in those things uh, with you, that we could enter into your death and die to ourselves, that we could enter into your resurrection and be raised into newness of life. Lord, we thank you that you care about your people, you're concerned about your people, you're not indifferent to your people. 
And Lord, we pray that we could see you rightly as our great Savior who loves us, and we pray that we could respond to you by trusting in you and obeying you and living for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.